Imagine you're a young FBI agent and you're asked to infiltrate the mafia. That's exactly what Joe Pistone did as Donnie Brasco. In this episode, he talks about setting up his whole world, his whole life as this fake person named Donnie Brasco infiltrating the mafia. It's supposed to be a six-month operation. It gets extended to six years. He talks about almost getting killed multiple times. He talks about trying to stay connected with his wife and kids and getting pulled away from them while he's infiltrating the mafia. It's a fascinating story, one that I've been fascinated with for years, and I finally get to interview Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr., and today I bring you Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco. Former FBI agent Joe Pistone went undercover for six years as Donnie Brasco, infiltrating two of the five families of the New York City Mafia. His work led to over 200 arrests, shedding light into the once thought impenetrable Mafia. In his first book, Donnie Brasco, My Undercover Life in the Mafia, he detailed the harrowing tales of criminal activity and nearly getting murdered on multiple occasions. And he has uh, another book that he wrote titled Unfinished Business, Shocking Declassified Details from the FBI's Greatest Undercover Operation in a Bloody Timeline of the Fall of the Mafia. Well, his first book, Donnie Brasco, was made into a movie. Johnny Depp played him, Donnie Brasco, a.k.a. Joe Pistone. Uh, Joe Pistone's the, the real undercover FBI agent. Al Pacino is in the movie and Hesh. It was an amazing movie, an even better book, like the books always are. And this is actually the very first book that I ever read in my life that wasn't like required reading for school. And I was like, man, if every book is half this good, I'm going to be hooked on reading for the rest of my life. But this story that undercover agent, retired undercover agent Joe Pistone shares here on this podcast that you're about to listen to is absolutely fascinating. He pulls back the curtain into what it was really like going undercover, being undercover, being in those moments where you have to perform, you have to step up and you can't freak out. You can't be afraid because if you do, your cover is blown and you get killed. He takes us inside his mind, inside his mindset, inside of his thinking, inside of his preparation. Let's get into it. Here's my interview with none other than Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco. You're a young FBI agent, and this concept of this operation comes across your desk. What made you believe that you could do this? Or did you even know that it would go as far as it went, the operation? I had been working undercover for several years before this operation. So I knew my abilities as an undercover agent. And I had just come off about a year and a half undercover operation where I infiltrated a gang of car thieves out of Florida that they were stealing high-priced automobiles on order. In other words, uh, you came to us and said, hey, uh, I want a Mercedes. Well, we take your order. What color do you want? You know, what are all the uh, goodies you want on it? And then we go to a Mercedes dealer and, and hook it and change all the numbers and, and sell it to the individual that wanted, that wanted the car. So I did that for a year and a half, and that was a successful operation. And I went back to New York, and my supervisor, a gentleman by the name of uh, Guy Barato, who 
just passed away, uh, unfortunately, had this concept in mind to try to infiltrate. Actually, original infiltration was try to infiltrate fences that were fencing stolen commodities, tractor trailers for the mob, for the mafia. And at that time in New York City, they were losing, you know, maybe 10, 15 loads a week or more like a day in some cases of high priced commodities like an 18 wheeler full of shrimp, full of coffee, pharmaceuticals, high value loads. So the plan was, well, let's see if we can get to the fences and then maybe back our way in into the mob guys, the New York mafia guys that, that were behind the operations. So a guy asked me if I wanted to give it a shot, be the undercover. And I said, yeah, because I just come off a year and a half. So we set up the whole operation, planned it, how we were going to go day to day. And it basically was for six months. That's what it was budgeted for. But I was fortunate enough that I had infiltrated and was getting some results. But to back up, I needed a profession. And you can't have a profession that promotes violence as an undercover agent. So I couldn't say that I was a, a stick-up man or I was a hit man. Because if, you know, if you're lucky enough to infiltrate, then they're going to test you. So the, uh, the idea was a, a jewel thief. And basically, why a jewel thief? Well, jewel thieves operate alone. You can operate alone. And they're not prone to violence. Most of them are not prone to violence. But in order to, uh, to be believable, I had to know diamonds and precious gems. So I went to school. I went to a, uh, a school in New York City that teaches you about diamonds and precious gems. And I also spent time with the friendly jeweler, with his diamond guy and watch guy learning the trade. And once I felt uh, comfortable that I can get out there and, and discuss diamonds and precious gems, then the next thing is, you know, you, you need background, you need, you need an apartment, you need an automobile. So I went out and rented an apartment, bought an automobile. And none of this was done through contacts. Well, what, what I mean is I just went out, got a driver's license in New York City, like every, anybody else would, under the name Donnie Brasco, went, rented an apartment under the name Donnie, you know, Donnie Brasco. Everything I did was under Donnie Brasco. And all this took probably uh, maybe four months to get everything in place, moved into my apartment. And then the, the idea was we had certain restaurants and bars targeted that we knew that these individuals hung out in. And the idea was for me to just go hang out in these places, get my face seen, and hopefully get in the conversation with somebody. And that's what I did. Did that for... Uh, probably seven months. I didn't have much luck because, you know, you just don't walk into a bar or, or restaurant that's dominated by gangsters and say, hey, you know, I'm Donnie Brasco, jewel thief. I want to hang out with you. You know, you got to hope that somebody starts talking to you and you, you go on from there. Yeah. Were there moments when, you know, you go into this operation and you probably don't know what you don't know, right? You have been undercover before. You had done your preparation for this, but it, this is a, another whole level of undercover. And you know, I guess first, take us to a moment where you're undercover. You had made some contacts. Was there a moment where you were in, like where you knew, like, okay, 
now I'm in, right? Now I'm not playing in the small time. I'm playing in the big time. Now I'm in, I'm really infiltrating the mafia. Was there a moment or a person that you met or an instance or uh, a transaction where you knew you were in and you were in deep now? Yeah. Yes, there, there was. And, you know, it, it came at a point where I had finally, uh, after about, like I said, six or seven months, I finally got a bartender to start talking to me. And the reason being, you know, undercover isn't like what you see on television. You know, I mean, you, you see that the undercover person goes in and brings attention to themselves, et cetera. That's not the way you do undercover. And my undercover was cold entry. And what I mean by that is that the I had to make introductions myself. I had to ingratiate myself to these individuals. I didn't have somebody bring me along and say, hey, this is, you know, this is my buddy, Donnie. We robbed a lot of jewel heist. Yeah, we grew up together. Yeah, none of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I had to take it slow. And also an undercover, the important thing is, is that, you know, you have to know your enemy. You have to know who you're dealing with, because if you know your enemy, it helps you in your conversations. It helps you in how you act, how you react to certain uh, situations. In this instance, I knew a lot about the mafia because, as I said, I grew up in, you know, in that type of environment in the neighborhood. And plus, working for the FBI, I knew, you know, I got to know about the mafia. And every organization has rules, no matter what it is. Even if it's a criminal organization, they have certain rules that they follow. That's how they keep their people in line. And you take the mafia. One of the rules with the mafia is you don't fool around with a mafia guy's wife, daughter, or girlfriend. If you get caught, it'll get you killed. So good rule to know if you're undercover, you know, and you don't steal money. You know, they have about five or six rules that'll get you killed. But that one particular rule, I hung around. One of the places I went in, I used to go in, was a bar, restaurant, that once a week, the uh, mob guys would have dinner there with their girlfriends. So after a few months, and my only conversation at the time with the bartender was, you know, what do you want to eat and what do you want to, what are you going to have to drink? That was my total conversation with the bartender. But I'm in there one night and that whole crew is in there, but there's one guy missing. I'm sitting at the bar and uh, this young lady gets up and she was always with this guy that wasn't there. She goes to the lady's room, she comes back, she stops, and she says, hi, hello to me. And I say, hello. Now, when she goes back to the table, I call the bartender over. And this goes back to know your enemy. Know everything about your enemy. So I said to the bartender, I have no interest in that young lady. Now, the bartender is part of this crew. You know, he's not a gangster, but he's with these guys. Now, just by me saying that, he knows this guy knows something. He's got some street smarts. Well, to make a long story short, this happens maybe two or three times. And every time I, I tell a bartender the same thing. Now that reinforces that, hey, you know, th- this guy's a street guy. Now we start getting conversation, but only about, you know, sports, about what's going on in the city, stuff like that. And then finally, you know, after a few, maybe another, I don't know, three, four weeks, he says to me, you like to gamble? I said, yeah. He said, well, he said, I'm going to an after-hours gambling joint. When I close up, you want to come? And I said, yeah. So I go with him. He doesn't introduce me to anybody, but I'm with him. So, you know, I'm good. 
and everybody there was a gangster. Now it comes time. I said, well, now I got to set the hook to this guy. So after a few more weeks, I'd come in the bar one night and I, I got a package and I just tell him, I said, Hey, I, I need X amount of money for this package. He doesn't look at it. Doesn't say anything, just takes it. In fact, he puts it under the bar. A couple of weeks go by. I don't ask him about the package. He doesn't say anything, but we go, you know, I'm, every time I come in there, I go out with him to the crap game after hours game. Then finally one night I come in, he puts an envelope on a bar and he said, Donnie, somebody left this for you. Hmm. I take it, put it in my pocket. Now we go to the game and he introduces me now as Don the jeweler. Cause what I gave him was a packet of diamonds. That's what I gave him. And the price I told him that I needed, you know, it was a street price and I left room for him to add on so he could make some money. So now he's introduced to me as Don the jeweler. So now you're in. Now, yeah, guys are talking to me. And one of the guys was a, was it a Colombo guy. And he says, hey, you ever get to Brooklyn? Stop by my club. So that's it started from there. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. So now that you're in, were there failures and setbacks along the way? You know, for most of my guests, when we talk about failure, it means a failed business. It means, you know, losing the big game or some, you know, Olympic moment, right? Where they had a setback. But for you, it could mean, as you alluded to earlier, it could mean death. It could mean your own death. It could mean death for others. Were there failures along the way where you felt you could have been killed that you learned from that aided you in the long run in the operation? Well, you know, it, it's funny. A failure, it actually propelled me into the next level. And I considered it a failure because I had to get into a physical confrontation. And, you know, you want to stay away from physical confrontations. And one of the rules in the mafia is that you can't insult or you can't put your hands physically on a guy that's a member of a particular family, of any family. And I tell you, you know, I was hanging around with the Columbos out in Brooklyn. To make a long story short, I got into an argument with two guys that were part of this crew uh, one day, and they actually called me out. And once it was over, I couldn't go up and say, hey, you know, I understand your, you know, concern, because that's a sign of weakness. Now, the only thing they understand here is a confrontation. I only had the choice to get confrontational with one guy because although he was with the crew, you know, he wasn't what they call a made guy. A made guy is somebody that's been inducted into a particular family and he wasn't inducted yet into this family. Now, the only thing that's going to make me maintain my respect and credibility is by getting physical. So after, you know, not nice at these, but after it was over, I hit this guy. I hit him. And uh, we got into a fight. The other guy, the guy that was a made guy now is, is hitting me, but I can't do anything to him because he's a made guy. I can't hit him because if you hit a made guy, you're dead. You're going to get killed. So once they broke it up, then I knew I couldn't hang around these guys anymore because it, it really would have escalated. But at the games, at the uh, gambling place, I had met another guy who was a Bonanno. 
and the Bonanno was a was another family. New York has five family, and he was the guy. Uh, so I started hanging around with him, and he was from Little Italy. So that's how I got in with the Bonanos, and stayed with the Bonanos. So you you were infiltrating the Colombo family. You had the altercation, and you realize okay I, that that road is closed now. So you switch and and you start infiltrating the Bonanno family. Were there moments? with the Bonanno family that you thought this could be it for me, where you thought this could be the end of the line for you? Yeah, actually, uh, the gentleman with the Bonanos was just one mean SOB. I mean, th this guy was, he was just a mean guy. And what, what is his name for those who have read the book and watched the movie? Tony Mirror. His name was changed in, in the movie, but in the book is Tony Mirror. And he was just mean. He was flat out mean. I got into an argument with him one one morning in a diner because he started yelling at a waitress because the food was cold. Remember, I said you're not supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to insult or embarrass a, a mafia guy in front of other people. And you know, I called him out that hey, it's not her fault, you know, that your food is cold. You know, it's probably been sitting in the kitchen. So we got into a beef, and that kind of severed our relationship. But I was pretty much in with a couple other Bonanno guys that I was able to maintain my relationship with the Bonanos. But it got to a point where later on in the investigation, he tried to have me killed three different times over this beef that we had several years prior. And how did you avoid getting killed? Well, I had infiltrated the Bonanos to such a degree that I was really close with my boss of the Bonanos, who was a known as a captain or a capo. They hope they have crews underneath them. And is and, that Lefty Ruggiero? No, that, well, it was him, but it was actually Sonny Black Napolitano. Sonny Black. He saved my life by standing up for me. And there was another time where I think it was Lefty and maybe Sonny also had to stand up for you and, and they wanted to kill you and you basically had to sit and wait for them to sort of stand up for you. and That was one of the beefs that Mira brought against yeah. me. He said I stole money from the family. He said I stole $250,000 from the family, which I didn't. So was there fear? You know, when you're in a moment like that, you know, if there's fear in a sales presentation, it goes bad. If there's fear or hesitation in an athletic event, you lose. You obviously, the, the stakes are much higher. When those moments were happening and you're, you're in it where you've got to make these split second decisions and you've got to scan the room and you've got to pay attention to body language and you've got to remember that you're an FBI agent and you're trying to infiltrate these guys and somebody wants to kill you or you can see that something's going down an alley where this could be a problem if you don't sort this situation out. I mean, how did you react in that moment? How did you control your performance? I mean, really what you're, you're performing, right? And a lot of, I talk a lot about performance on this podcast. I mean, you're in a moment where you have to perform, you have to step up, you have to stay in character and undercover, keep your cool. I mean, how, how were you able to do that? Was it just experience being undercover? Well, a lot of it has to do with the individual. And a lot of it has to do with experience, being an, under, an undercover agent. And a lot of it has to do with mental toughness. You know, undercover has a lot to do with mental toughness. If you don't have mental toughness, you're not cut out for the undercover field. I mean, you could be a, a great FBI agent, a great DEA agent, a great police officer. But I don't mean to pat myself on the shoulder, but the good undercovers have that extra twist of mental toughness.
And, you know, you just maintain your cool and just carry on like you're one of them in that situation. You know, it's not like, what would I do as an FBI agent in this situation? It's how do I handle this situation as a gangster? Yeah. You had to become a gangster. You had to mentally become a gangster in your mind. You had to be that person. Exactly. And how was it maintaining a family? You're married with children while you're undercover and you would go months at a time, am I right, without seeing your family. How were you able to navigate that? How were you able to, to get away? Because when you went to visit your family, you had to make up an excuse. You had to say where you were going and people kind of seemed to keep track of you, right? How did you manage that? Once you're in, they have to know where you are at all, all times. Well, I had made up a story that I had a girlfriend in California. So when I wanted to go home, I said, I'm going to visit my girlfriend in California. And I would fly there and then fly wherever I had to go to go home. Then the rest of it was spending a lot of money on phone bills. <laughs> you know, basically it was uh, staying in contact on the telephone. And there was a time when you were trying to, you were going to go visit your family, I think for a holiday, maybe Christmas. And a couple of guys felt bad for you that you were, you know, they thought you were just going to be alone by yourself and they came and visited you in your apartment. So you couldn't leave, right? Yeah. My cover story was I was an orphan. I'd never been married. I had no kids. I had no, no girlfriends in the city. My girlfriend was, was in California. So it was Christmas Eve. And uh, next thing I know, a couple guys show up at my apartment with a little Christmas tree. And we sat there all night decorating the Christmas tree and, and drinking hot chocolate, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you have experiences like that. And, and you've maintained that, you know, this was business for you. When the operation ended and these guys were arrested, some of them killed, this was business for you. You're an FBI agent. They're gangsters. But was there, was there a connection? Was there any bit of a, a friendship or a kinship that you felt with these guys? I th I've heard you say that there, there was a respect there. But was it beyond that respect? Was there a friendship? Well, you know, I don't know friendship. Look, you're with guys seven days a week, you know. 12, 13 hours a day, 365 days a year. You spend holidays with them. You meet their families. You know their wives. You know their girlfriends. You know their kids. So you see good in all of them, you know, but then you know that they're killers, that they're gangsters. So I respected some of them. You know, you say, well, how can you respect them? Well, because they really believed in that life and they were doing what they thought was the way that they should live their lives, you know? I mean, you take Sonny Black. Sonny Black went to a meeting, you know, after the operation was over and they found out that I was a, an FBI agent. He went to a meeting knowing that he probably was going to get killed, but he went to the meeting. He went to the meeting anyway. But Jerry was going to get killed and uh, the FBI saved his life because they heard on a wire he was going to get killed. But he spent 15 years in jail. Never said a word. And the only reason they got out is because he had terminal cancer. So they send him home to die. Tony Mira got killed. They shot Tony Mira. Now, that was the only guy that it didn't bother me one bit that they killed him. Uh, I mean, the guy was mean, flat out mean. I mean, he was so, so that a lot of the wise guys didn't like him, but he was such a big money maker, you know. Like, you see the good points of him, you know, like I, Ruggiero, he was tough to be with. He had a grandson. He loved his grandson. I mean, here's a, here's a stone killer, you know, and you don't think of him loving his grandson. Sonny Black was a stone killer. 
He had a couple of daughters and a son. He loved them. I mean, you know, because I had conversations with him about it. And you're looking at a guy, I know he's got at least 10 hits under his belt, you know, but he's talking about how he loves his daughters and his son, you know. Yeah. I have a friend of mine. He's a, a Pat Nate Cars. his name. He's a NCAA champion, wrestler and world champion. And uh, he's a pastor and he, he worked with men in prison. And he said, there's a lot of guys in there who are good people who've made bad decisions and gone down bad roads in their lives. Yeah. And, you know, and these guys, I mean, that's how they grew up. They didn't decide to become gangsters at 20 years old. You know, they were stealing when they were 12, 13, 14 years old, because that's the environment they grew up in, you know. And like I say, you know, you see the bad things that they do. But then when you're sitting down over dinner with somebody and, you know, he's talking about his kids and and his wife and, you know, it's like, man, and, and now I know this guy, you know, maybe last night or maybe tomorrow he's going out and killing somebody, you know. I mean, it's strange, but that's, you know, there's people in the world like that, you know. So you went through this amazing experience in the operation, success, failure, learning from those failures and moving on. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, talk to yourself right now before you went undercover, what would you tell yourself? Tell myself probably not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's tough because it was a successful operation. I mean, it was the most successful undercover operation in the history, you know, of law enforcement as far as infiltrating the mafia, you know. Yeah, hundreds of guys arrested, right? hundred of guys went to jail on, just on mine, but it was a linchpin for all the other organized crime cases that took down, you know, what we did was we took the mafia from being an A-game player to now just another organized crime group in the country. But I don't know if I could prepare better because we did, you know, the preparation was A-1. It's more regrets, regrets not being there with my kids growing up, that's probably if I knew that it was going to go six years and I would have missed all these, like one time my youngest daughter was going to make her communion and I, I'm home. I get a call from Rogerio. You got to meet us in Miami tomorrow. Uh, we got a piece of work to do. Now, piece of work to them is, is a hit, is a murder. With the mafia, the only people they kill are... <laughs> are other gangsters, all right? People that are other mob guys or people that are in illegal business with them that screw them or steal money from them. And he said, we, you know, we need you to be the driver. So get to Miami, pick us up at the airport. So now I have to leave. Got to leave my daughter's confirmation. I jump a red eye. I get to Miami. And then they don't show up. They called it off. So... <laughs> I'm sitting in the airport in Miami and nobody shows. I call, oh, we called it off. Well, thanks. You know, why don't you call me? You know, but again, that's their mindset. You know, why would we have to call you? You know, because, you know, I'm out in California visiting my girlfriend, you know. Yeah, I recently interviewed uh, Kenny Thomas. He was a Army Ranger soldier in Black Hawk Down. And, you know, he was in the Battle of Mogadishu. And, you know, the movie was, you know, the whole day that the movie was made about, man, what, a, what service to our country that he did and these guys fighting over there did. And I, I think of it the same thing for you. I mean, you sacrifice so much to do so much good in the world. So, you know, I, th I thank you for that service just as the same as I thank him. 
I don't put myself on the same level as, as special op guys, believe me. <laughs> I know a lot of them. I, I used to do a lot of talking to SEAL teams, you know. What kind of talks would you do to SEAL teams? Well, about hanging in mental toughness. I mean, these guys, their mental toughness is unbelievable, you know. And, you know, never quit. These guys have no quit in them. So there's a lot of the same traits that way. But, you know, I mean, they're going into everyday battles, you know. So, Joe, your story gets made into a book, which gets made into a movie, and Johnny Depp plays Donnie Brasco uh, and Joe Pistone, and uh, Al Pacino's in the movie, plays Lefty Ruggiero. What was that like when, when the movie came out? Well, it, <laughs> when I saw it, you know, it brought tears to my eyes, really. You know, and I'm thinking, here's me, a kid from Patterson, New Jersey, you know, and they're making a movie about him. And I never went into... Uh, undercover work thinking, uh, geez, I'm going to write a book and, and have a movie made about my cases, you know. It's just surreal. I mean, it, it was. But I, I lucked out and that Depp was a great guy, still is a great guy. Al Pacino was great. Uh, all the actors were, you know, good people as far as dealing with me. In fact, I'm still friends with Depp. You know, we stay in contact all the time. And uh, a lot of the other actors in the movie that, you know, I stay in contact with, they were I don't know that I've watched the movie from beginning to end other than the first time I saw it, but it's, it, it's an experience, you know, it was an experience. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I, I tell people going through the Hollywood process, sometimes you'd rather be dealing with gangsters than with Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a whole, uh, a whole different world, man. So you still have a $500,000 bounty on your head from the mafia. Do you worry about that? Are you still in hiding? Well, you know, I, I don't think anybody gets up every morning saying, you know, I'm going to look for Joe today, you know. First of all, I don't think they could collect the 500 from the mob. That'd be a tough one for them to collect their 500. No, what I do is, uh, you know, I, I take precautionary measures. But because what you worry about is you worry about a cowboy, you know, that somebody maybe just looking for notoriety. Because I'm sure that any mob guy with sense knows they're not going to collect the money now. But some young cowboy, you know, that thinks he can put his name, you know, in lights, uh, that's what you worry about. If you weren't an FBI agent, Joe, what would you have ended up doing? I would have been in law enforcement. I would have been a local police officer or maybe DEA. or I would have been in law enforcement, you know. It just so happens that I got the call from the FBI uh, before the other agencies, yeah. Well, Joe, your story is absolutely incredible. For the listeners, I encourage you to, to pick up the book, watch the movie. It's a phenomenal read and a phenomenal movie, just an incredible story. Joe, I appreciate you making time to come on the show. My pleasure. And get the second book, Unfinished Business, because it picks up where the first book leaves off. So you want the Donnie Brasco, My Undercover Life in the Mafia, and then Unfinished Business as the second one. And for the listener, we'll have the link in the action plan. So you can go right there. You, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon or you can go to jimharshajr.com slash action. We'll have the link directly to the book so you can make sure to pick up your copy. Joe, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, congratulations. I understand you were an All-American wrestler and all that. Yeah, once upon a time. Yeah, my kids don't care. I don't know if anybody cares anymore, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I had to take the garbage out this morning, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's, uh, that's the truth. That's how it goes sometimes. Well, Joe, it was, uh, it was a great pleasure talking to you, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to meet you in person sometime. 
Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. Take care of yourself. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.